Isabel. I'm Morgan. And this is Lomance. A podcast about romance novels. About learning to survive. About big honkin' fairies. About trying not to be mad at your dad. About artistic sensibilities. About feeling tingly when you're not invited to the party and you sneak there anyway. About how imprisonment can feel a little bit like love. <laughs> About always being that girl. About stemming a rose. About learning to love your thorns. <laughs> but most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. ourselves. Our long-awaited return. I'm going to say it. I've been long-awaiting it. I plugged in my microphone tonight and I was like, ugh, home. <laughs> Even though I've been recording from home this whole time. <laughs> Um, yeah, you've been busy. I've been slightly less busy, I would say, overall, but yeah, we've been busy, but we're really excited to be back, and as expected, when someone returns from, like, a big seismic world shift that maybe feels stressful, we have decided to read, uh, an incredibly popular book, A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Moss. Or Mass. We don't know. We don't know her. What did the what did your audiobook reader say? I'd never I guess she just said it once yep. like hours ago. Yeah. That was 14 <laughs> hours ago, Morgan. I have no idea. <laughs> Is this a 14 hour recording? Uh it's usually 16, but I listened to it at 1.3 speed. Well, I actually I'm actually very interested to learn before we get into the back of the book what it was like listening to the book on tape. Um, I want to know the review about that. And I'd also like to share my journey of how I came to possess, because this was my pick. And I read it independently with no intention of ever speaking of it out loud. (laughs) That's so funny. Uh, Let's see. The experience of reading it. So what's really funny is that I I love listening to books. I do it often for this podcast. I, I just enjoy it. So I'm actually pretty familiar with this narrator. Her name is, I'm going to get this. I want to get this correct because she was actually profiled in the New York Times just this past weekend. And I was like, what a dink!" It's Jennifer Akita. And she currently makes six figures working three days a week just recording books. And it's like she's built a home studio. She's got this whole thing with Audible. It was a very nice profile. Um, and I think <laughs> wow. dreams, dreams do come, come true. true. Uh, I was like, Jennifer Akita, how do I get your life? My dream came true for Jennifer Akita. <laughs> Um, but I'm familiar with her work. I really like her. Um, she tends to do YA and she tends to do first person, uh, narratives. So she'd actually done another Beauty and the Beast retelling, which is why when I was first listening to it, I was like, oh, it's strange to me that you picked a YA and you're like, this isn't YA. And I was like, oh, okay. And then once that had shifted for me mentally and I got to the smutty bits of the book, I was like, oh yeah, (laughs) this would be a lot for a 13 year old or something. I really like listening to it. And I think Jennifer Akita does a really good job um, because she doesn't pretend that she can be a man instantaneously. So her man quote unquote voice for the main characters aren't silly. They're just like a normal person just roughens their voice slightly. So, like, I don't feel like I'm being patronized. Yeah. Like the young gods. 
Yes. Yeah. You knew immediately what I was talking about. <laughs> Correct. Uh, well, I acquired this book after going on a date to a Chili's in the suburbs with a friend, uh, getting a little loaded on Presidente Margaritas, and we were like, there's a Barnes & Noble. We haven't been in a Barnes & Noble in centuries. Let's walk across the parking lot. You know, and we'd just eaten at Chili's, so maybe we were going to have to emergency poop. And when that happens, you want to be inside the Barnes & Noble. Which has nice and cool bathrooms that also don't have a thousand stalls. It's like, you know, a reliable three. Yeah. It's also just yeah. that smell. It's yeah. like a cup of coffee. And so I, I saw A Court of Thorns and Roses, and I'd heard a lot about it because I spend uh, most of my days whiling away on TikTok. <laughs> and this was actually on a display table made by the very witty people at the Barnes & Noble uh, that was, in fact, book talk themed mm. uh, with lots of uh, different kinds of books that have popped up there. So I was really resistant to reading this because uh, I saw a lot of people talking about how steamy it was, mm -hmm. and I have discovered that... My definition of steamy and a 17-year-old's <laughs> definition of steamy are two very different things. There was also, like, this whole thing with the Northmen where everyone was talking about, like, okay. this is related. Everyone was talking about <laughs> Willem Dafoe's dong yep. in the Northmen. Mm -hmm. Like, would not shut up about it. It's on screen for, like, it's like the shade of his penis is visible for, like, a millisecond not even and it's like barely i feel like we got more of ben affleck's dick in that awful movie batman the last <laughs> duel <laughs> matt damon you're thinking of matt damon wait was ben affleck in yeah he has a terrible uh peroxide blonde wig on for the whole thing no that's matt no. damon that's matt damon ben affleck also does they have matching wigs they they love each other. They had matching wigs for the worst movie ever released. So. They just spooned each other. Uh, <laughs> Between their takes. matching wigs. Cute. <laughs> I would like them both so much more if I if they openly did that kind of thing. Oh god, me too. They'd be so much more palatable. Anyway. And there's actually a lot of debate over like, well, as millennials, like we got exposed to like rotten.com at a really young age. So is our threshold for all things um, transgressive way too high? And then, of course, Gen Zers are like, that's not actually a flex as they anyway. So there's a lot of so I was like, I don't know if this is for me because a horror novel from that from like certain people I trust yes but like I hadn't really seen a lot of people are super familiar with talking about A Court of Thorns and Roses like the voices I trust on TikTok to talk about romance but I had heard truly so much about it and in fact I saw like uh TikTokers who don't really talk about romance or fantasy like they don't talk about genre fiction one of them said, A Court of Thorns and Roses might be one of my favorite books of all time, and then proceeded to describe the stuff you find in, like, every romance novel. <laughs> so I hope they've branched out. Like, they talked about how, like, weird it was <laughs> Wow. about sex. And I was like, oh, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is for you, especially if you think this is that. <laughs> but anyways, so I read it, and with no, like I said, with no intention of ever speaking to anyone about it ever again. Yeah. But my God, it really got its claws under my skin. 
and I there's so much about it that I was like why do I like this I don't even particularly care for fantasy I am always rail against Beauty and the Beast retellings even though I but here's the thing I rail against them but I have I ever disliked one (laughs) I don't think I have no not that we've read for the podcast Thou dost protest too much, Morgan. I know. And like, I've been like this super cultural minority and that I actually think the beast is hot in human form. In... Mm, you are in a cultural minority. Yeah. I think he's dreamy. I think he's got like pillowy lips. He does. His hair is also very dreamy and like super Brad Pitt from the 90s. They like, somebody oh, yeah. definitely was like a river runs through it. Brad Pitt is going to be Belle's prince. I'm like, I'm here He's for He's like a juicy, pillowy Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also like him in his beast form. Like, I mean, I don't think that's going to surprise longtime listeners. Uh, yeah, same. But <laughs> I couldn't shut up about it. Like, I read it in, like, three days. I, like, scarfed it down. I immediately went to another Barnes & Noble to try and collect the second book. Um, it is, I discovered the second book is the thickness of of lonesome dove (laughs) i sent a bunch of people a snapchat of the spine of the second book next to lonesome dove and i was like i can't believe she got away with this this is absurd um but then eventually i read the second book so just for context um i am coming to this discussion having read the first two books and like half of the third one and isabeau this is she has no other context she's just read the first book just read the first one. So before we dive into the back of the book, I guess it's good to know that this is part of a larger series. Watch yourselves. Do you want me to read the back of the book? If you wouldn't mind. <coughs> Let me cleanse my gullet <laughs> to do this justice. I also feel like I only talk about gullets with you and I read about them in <laughs> romance, but it's not a word in like my common parlance and like my daily, but I read <laughs> gullet a lot in romance i just wanted to throw that out there like much appreciated thank you for using it yeah um okay i'm gonna i'm gonna start with the blurb at the top let's do the whole thing okay from number one new york times best-selling author sarah j moss comes a seductive breathtaking book that blends romance adventure and fairy lore fairy spelled f-a-e-r-i-e this is a serious fantasy novel into an unforgettable read. When 19-year-old Huntress, Feyre, kills a wolf in the woods, a terrifying creature arrives to demand retribution. Dragged to a treacherous, magical land she knows about only from legends, Feyre discovers that her captor is not truly a beast, but one of the lethal, immortal fairies who once ruled the world. At least he's not a beast all the time. As she adapts to her new home, her feelings for the fairy, Tamlin, transform from icy hostility into a fiery passion that burns through every lie she's been told about the beautiful, dangerous world of the Fae. But something is not right in the fairy lands. An ancient, wicked shadow is growing, and Feyre must find a way to stop it or doom Tamlin and his world forever. All right. Yeah. Where would you like to begin with that? Let's start with 19-year-old. <laughs> Before she's described as a huntress, she's described as 19 years old. 
It's so that you know that she's supple, but also over the age of consent. Yeah, yeah. It's also kind of like a, it still feels vulnerable. 19 feels vulnerable, you know. Which is also why, like, this feels like a tally mark for YA, because, like, if you still have teen as as your main character, I feel like you get classified as YA more likely. Although it's like a very romance move, too, where it's like 21-year-old Charlotte Perkins is a perky New York Times reporter in 1812. You know, it's like age on women is very typical in back of the books in uh, fantasy and romance, especially of a certain time. Yeah, it's almost, I've got to say, like, fantasy romance, like, the fact of her 19-year-oldness is pretty interesting. Like, I think it would be rarer if they were, like, 32-year-old Huntress, Feyre, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, like, I think maybe this is flagging vulnerability, which would be giving it a lot of credit, but maybe it's deserved. In, there's something underlying implied about saying 19-year-old. Like, it almost, it, yeah, I think you're right. I think it suggest, more than suggests that this is a book for youngsters. Which it's not. It's not. And it's not just because of the, the sex. No, I think the sex is the least of it about like why I would like hesitate giving it to like a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old. Yeah. So it doesn't talk much about where she comes from on the back of the book. But I think that's an important place to start. Because mm-hmm. uh, she's not just 19 and she's not just a huntress who's capable of killing a wolf in the woods. She's a daughter of a disgraced lord who's lost all of his money in this investment scheme. Um, and there's like a pretty intense scene of violence uh, where the creditors come and break her father's kneecap uh, in front of her. And she has two sisters, both of whom sort of operate in the traditional uh, Beauty and the Beast space of being ungrateful and unhelpful and this is Feyre is the daughter who is keeping body and soul together at the homestead by going out and training herself how to hunt in the forest and she's keeping everybody alive with the meat that she kills and the pelts that she sells so she's also hyper capable yeah they're they are deeply destitute and deeply reliant on her um and she also makes the point that her father even if his kneecaps hadn't been broken he still would not take care of them like she believes that in her soul she does um and so she feels like she's called upon to do this because she has no other choice not that she's particularly apt at any of this she's just the only one who would and her family lives in the human i I say realm, but it's really just like geographical. But they call it the human. But south <laughs> yeah, of the wall. They live south of the wall in the human realm. Yeah, they do. Realm to me, I don't know what it is. But like that, of course, that makes sense. Of course, a realm is geographical. I don't know why I was like, <laughs> that fantasy language is silly. Yeah, I know. Like I'm very <laughs> unqualified to talk about this book, but it's she lives in the human realm because the fairies, F A E. R-I-E, decided to, like, just hang out north of this wall. They get the majority of the land, um, but apparently they had uh, enslaved and abused humans. Humans had had fewer rights while they were coexisting, so there was a rebellion um, that was, like, fairies supporting humans and evil fairies on the other side of things who lost, and there's, like, no magic in their land. There's a couple of 
rules, though, uh, neither can cross the wall, which is magically warded, so they can't, supposedly. And then the other thing is that they believe iron is deadly to fair will like protect you against fairies and ash wood uh can harm a fairy but those are kind of like your only wards against them Mm -hmm. and there's a small cult of humans who uh want the fairies to come back they're called the children of the blessed and they operate like a strange cult in the first few chapters they like wear special clothes they're trying to get people to like join them in this like yeah religious uh ferocity um and since we're in Ferris perspective and the book is written in first person you really get a sense that she does not like the children of the blessed and she both like feels pity for them and also has like a real sense of like y'all are stupid and fucked and with this whole conversation i i mean like we're very much touching on the facts of it but this is like a bleak existence. Yes. And it's understood as a bleak existence. It's also like a 19-year-old who's accepted a bleak existence. Yeah. Like she has sex with this guy, Isaac, who's like the oldest son of a wealthy farmer. And she's doing it for release. Like there's and she's so honest about it. And it like even even her like sexual release is bleak. And, like, her relationships with her sisters is bleak. It's winter all the time. They're always on the edge of starvation. It's, it's like, it's a tough road to hoe. It's not like Beauty and the Beast with uh, the Disney version where, like, Belle's just bored and nobody reads books. It's, like, we're eking out an existence. It's much more Katniss Everdeen than, like, Belle. And she's also, you know, her family is actively disliked by the community. Yes. And they live on a shack, in a shack on the outskirts of town. Yeah. I like it's very dark. And then she sees this wolf in the woods and it looks like a weird wolf, but she's like, I need that wolf. I need its pelt and I need to kill the deer to feed my family. Yeah. And so she kills the wolf. And then in comes on a blustery night, a beast tears open the door off its hinges. Off its hinges, screams, takes, demands her as reparations, right, for the death of his, yeah, uh, and takes her north of the wall because it turns out there's lots of holes in it. Yep. And, and thus our adventure truly begins. And she's taken into this, like, gilded, beautiful, flowery. It's springtime. Perpetual spring. Yeah. And so it's interesting to me that, you know, there is there is there is creepy stuff in this world. There is dangers. But be describing it as a treacherous magical la- No, I actually think that's probably good. But it's just it feels so much more exhilarating and beautiful than her previous existence. I think this is a great time to talk about character building and world building and how this author is so good at blending and mirroring the two. So we find out early in the bleak existence of Feyre that she loves to paint. And one of the things that she's done to try to, you know, bring some sunshine to their bleak little hovel is like paint these accents in drawers and by the fireplace and on the table but they could only afford the primary colors so she couldn't have white so she couldn't do it the way that she wanted and they couldn't be realistic and it's like this sticking point for her that she like tried to bring color into her world and then she gets to the fairy realm 
and it just explodes in color and the beast we learn whose name is tamlin like his eyes are they're not just green they're emerald gleam like flecked with gold naturally and he has to wear this mask and it's like bejeweled and his like the threads of his tunic are all gorgeous and like the the discussion of the lack of color like the washout of color in her human existence and then the explosion of color in the fairy world mirrors this like flowering inside of pharaoh where it's once you don't have to eke out an existence you have more time for the things that you actually want to do which is for her painting and like you know thinking and not killing things right she doesn't she's not a huntress by choice she doesn't enjoy hunting she did it to survive and like that becomes like a strange and beautiful theme throughout like under what circumstances is it okay to kill And this book does a really good job of, like, pulling insides and making them outsides. Yeah, and I think the, like, maneuvering of the beast thing is interesting because Tamlin Wright, who is our hero in this text, uh, he does not remain in this, like, disturbing beast form that we first see him in. He reverts to, like, a beautiful human plus uh, version, (laughs) right? Yeah. But he has, he still is a beast because he has a beautiful gold mask uh, super glued to his face. Yeah. So we find out that his court is under this spell that none of them can remove these masks that they're all wearing. Which also delineate class. His is like this, <laughs> this beautiful wolf. Yeah. Because <laughs> the servants don't have, do they? No, they do. Do they? They do, but... All the servants are wearing bird masks or or they're indicative of their jobs. So the inside the house servants wear bird masks. But when she goes to the stables to get a horse, all the stable boys are wearing horse masks. Lucian has a fox mask. So like the masks delineate class, which is something that I want to talk about later. Because everyone in the realm is wearing a mask. No one can take them off. They've had to wear them for 50 years. They've all been enchanted. And she thinks, like, oh, I live in this, like, super, you know, she's not over, it's just, she meets Tamlin, right, in his beautiful mask, and she meets Lucian in his beautiful mask, and then she meets her, like, I know that she's a housekeeper, but she's more like a caretaker. Alice. Who's wearing, like, a bird mask. Yeah. I actually, let's talk about class. Okay. Because that's so, because you're right. Like the idea that your physical form is now completely determined by your job, not just your rank, but like your work, what your labor provides to the court, except Tamlin and Lucian, who are the two kind of well-to-do folks, uh, landed gentry of this story. They mm-hmm. get masks that relate to their personalities and personal identity. That's devastating. Also, like, the idea of a masquerade is oftentimes used in texts as a way to, like, level a playing field. Like, it gives lots of people the opportunity to, like, transgress class boundaries. Um, but kudos to Tamlin's court for finding out a way to make that impossible. <laughs> Which is so funny. So, like, the way that class works in this book is, like, both really strange and confusing and I think, uh, like, a little bit loosey-goosey because Tamlin – well, maybe it's not because when you said landed gentry, that's actually 
if we were thinking about this in a romance, like Tamlin is a hashtag good lord or hashtag good dude because he cares very deeply about his servants and the people of his realm. A good dude. Which like that's the good dude. Yeah. Exactly. That's how you know that he's a match for the heroine because a worthy one. A worthy one because he cares about, you know, his lowers. But the idea then that like you're just forever marked by your class and like there's no way to shed that even in your own off hours that like you're you, like even looking in the mirror you'd be reminded you go to sleep in that horse mask right um is a bonkers discussion <laughs> and like also like the like you'd go to this masquerade and like if you find out that like this evil queen has engineered this whole thing why wouldn't the servants have chosen other masks right like <laughs> It kind of seemed like, and it, it there was a question of choice because like Lucian chose a fox, which definitely feels representative of his like sneaky personality. Obviously, Tamlin is like the king of the forest beasts with a yeah. wolf. But like, why would the stable boys have chosen horse masks unless they like went to the masquerade to also work? Right, like they had to bring the horses there, so they might as well. They were they were decorations for the theme party. <laughs> right. Oh my god. And like that never gets ameliorated in the text. No. Yeah, and 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 it and it functions in a similar way. I think that like the hashtag good Duke does. Um, kind of a bummer in that sense. It's like a very physical bummer. Very physical bummer. It's a very lived bummer. You know, it's the evil queen's fault that they're all stuck in the masks, but it's Tamlin's fault that they're all wearing the masks in the first place. I don't think that was her party idea no it wasn't yeah and so like you have that part in the fey realm but then in the human realm you have um Feyre's sister nesta who is rude and mean and cunty super cunty and part of it is the way that Feyre understands it at first is because her sister takes the fall in their class status the hardest and like she remembers the nice things the most and so living in the hovel is and she's the most like their mother who also sucked super duper and would not have been able to survive in their reduced circumstances and so like that's also an interesting discussion about like what it means to lose like to to fall in class and like to lose class status and like how that affects people and then to have a rigid class structure just across the wall like as rigid as the one that she had just been in except she gets to transcend and like maneuver around like Alice sort of becomes her de facto like fun aunt slash mom figure and she eats dinner with the lords uh Lucian and Tamlin every night she's a guest in the house she's a guest in the house and that feels like a rule of the beauty and the beast story for sure Belle cannot be, or the beauty cannot be called on to labor. Do housework, yeah. For sure. And, like, there's this other interesting part. So, like, jumping ahead in time, like, she has an honest conversation with Alice, and then, like, Alice starts telling her information. And it only occurred to me in that moment that when Alice is talking about the curse that they're all under, and she's really explicit about it for the first time in the text, that, like, Lumiere and Cogsworth never fucking told Belle 
what the conditions of the enchantment were. Like, we all know about the enchantress and, like, why yeah. the beast was being punished. But nobody told Belle. She's, she knows she's in an enchanted castle, but she's, like, no idea why. And it's, like, the same thing in this book. And, like, it never occurred to me to be, like, why doesn't Belle ask anyone? But, like, Feyre, and, like, this is a great move on the part of this book. Like, this book is, like, Feyre is asking questions and people are being really cagey with her. And I was, like, oh, my God. Why aren't the other bells or the other, like, you know, beauties and the Beauty and the Beast retellings asking more questions about the enchantments that they encounter? Like, that felt like... (laughs) And it took this book in the year of our Lord 2022 for me to be like, oh, wait, you would ask a lot more questions. Well, while Belle read a lot of books, I don't know if she read a lot of high fantasy in the Disney movie. So she didn't know to show up and be like, what are the parameters of this magical world? She really didn't. Yeah. I always assume that like, because Gaston tells like, I guess, I don't know. Enough time has passed that like stories and legends. The last time we read a Beauty and the Beast retelling for the wolf, once again, a wolf, the... It was like legend, and I think she she also didn't ask a lot of questions. I remember, mm-hmm. and everything was just kind of filled in from like folk knowledge, which this book doesn't do. Right, this book is very active, and like it's like you should also be yeah. asking questions, and you should also be trying to figure out this puzzle. Like that's an active piece of the plot. That is so true. The world building here does call upon you to identify with someone who's being, yeah, actively engaged. For want of a thesaurus. Yeah. So I've been like wrestling with this because I found this book like so captivating and like just pulled me through. Couldn't get enough of it. Couldn't wait to read like the end of my work day. I was like looking forward to sitting down and reading more of this book mm-hmm. for the all of three days I was able to make it last. And I and I really struggled with like <sighs> wanting to talk about it because I think when I really like something, it makes it harder. It's also, I read it without the intention of talking about it. So I don't think I was thinking too deeply, but there was something in my head that was like, why is this one working this well? And I think what you just described really clicks. It is a super active, like to compare it with something like Woodowis, which is a very passive reading experience. You're kind of just feeling things happen. Like you're just rolling with it because the heroine you're meant to identify with is likewise. And so Thera, as much as I like for sure got frustrated with the first person narration in this, I think that's also kind of key Do you think this book works without a first person with like a cuddly third? Yes and no. And I know that's like a wishy-washy answer, but I think this book would have been served by having a perspective outside of Feyre because there were moments where it was really clunky where like somebody really has to like, like a non-player character really has to explain something to you so you can get to the next part. And those moments were really obvious where like, I think that's the limitation of a first person narrator and like there there were definitely moments where I'm like, ooh, if you just if you'd instituted like an every fifth chapter different perspective or like a lore perspective or like, you know, a prologue perspective, like that really would have been able to do a lot of structural work that like I now feel clunked into. Yeah. But in terms of not making Feyre a Mary Sue, like of really building her out, 
I think it only works as a as a first person. Yeah, because if we got like Tamlin's like dreamy falling in love perspective, yeah, it would have been a Mary Sue, and that's like what his. That's what his uh, perspective is. He is pretty good from Feyre's perspective. She does, this book does do a good job of like actually kind of keeping you on your toes a little bit. Like just enough, right? Because Lucian also has a woodland creature mask. (laughs) So he could. He's a fox. Yeah, he could be maybe the love interest, right? And they're both kind of icy Lucian does that, like, super charming thing of being, like, frank, you know? Yes. But it's nice. It was refreshing to have, like, a male character who seemed to only like our main character in spite of himself. I love characters like that. <laughs> yeah. And they're pretty rare in romance. They are rare. I I call them, like, at this point, because... They feel very Loki to me, like the Marvel Loki. Like they're the most, I think Frank is the right word, where it's like they're they're like the dark side of Ernest, where it's like you have to trust them, but there's also something sneaky. There's like an ulterior motive. There's a hidden dagger. They don't like you because you're pretty and not like all the other girls. They like find that either annoying or untrustworthy um, at first blush. Not unlike Loki, Lucian really, really loves Tamlin in an extremely loyal and platonic way. And like, I'm sure there are tons of fan fiction about Tamlin and Lucian. But I think there's something really interesting about forcing a frank and sort of satirical character's major point of weakness to also then be the point of weakness for the heroine because then that's the link that ties them together in the text and like that's the thing that they have in common they can build towards and work you know as a team Mm -hmm. was their affection for tamlin right and i think in this text like a it was obvious i knew like i knew what was happening with that relationship pretty quickly but i also found it really organic and like entirely workable and it was because we were getting everybody's backstory at different like in different kinds of chunks and in different kinds of speeds. So like I didn't feel like I knew Lucian for a long time. I just knew that he was loyal to Tamlin. Yeah. And then like as his backstory is unpeeled, like his actions become um much more understandable, but like I I trusted them even without understanding the backstory and like I thought that was a really interesting move of this text to like it functioned kind of like that um what was the the hoover book that we read it was almost like a mystery right where it's like i'm gonna give you this big piece of information but i'm gonna withhold this other stuff and like you have to sort through what you need to get to the next part verity yeah verity it was like that for me i yeah and i think another way that this book kind of resists mary suing Mm mm-hmm is that the things that people admire about Feyre are kind of objective. Like, when she catches that creature that's super elusive. Yeah, the Sorial. Mm-hmm. And then eventually when she starts going through trials under the mountain, people admire her for these really objective things. Like, we get the usual, like, <laughs> I'm not even pretty kind of thing. But we also, you know, and we get, like, blushes of her being physically attractive, especially in the second act. But that's also when the um, stakes of her accomplishments increase. Not only that, but 
she becomes prettier in the second act. And I think this is one of the things that I wanted to point out um, about. Because she porks up. Because Exactly. Because she porks up because she's not skeletally starving. Right. She porks up, hose down, <laughs> porks up, hose, uh, exactly like she puts on weight and becomes more beautiful because she's not starving and she comes more into confidence with her body in a very particular way. And everyone's like, oh, man, you've been eaten. And I'm like, this is correct. Thank you. Yeah. Her her 19 year oldness isn't commented on. It's her womanliness. Right. Delightful. Delightful. The other thing that I think this book does um, that really helps to resist Mary Suing is that she has a really big secret, which is that she cannot read. And that feels truly, unlike with a lot of Mary Sue texts where it's like, I'm not even pretty. I'm not even as smart as my friends. That like specificity and the experience of being in her perspective while she struggles with it and not just like struggles with the act of reading itself, but struggles with having other people know that about her. Yep. That second part is what makes it so relatable. And that first thing is what feels so like shocking and almost like insurmountable, you know? Absolutely. The the idea of her illiteracy both totally snowed me under, like totally surprised, 100% didn't see that coming. And then in the in the reveal of others, like when Tamlin discovers that she can't read, he very kindly tries to be like, "I'll I'll write the letter for your family if you want," which is like the exact opposite of what you want to do when someone has like discovered a secret that you find shameful about yourself. You're like, "Don't draw attention to it. Don't look at it. Just like, you know, I'm going to fucking figure it out on my own. Like, don't touch it." And then like he keeps touching it and it's just it, oh my god, like the, the the humiliation heckles of that were just like, "Oh god, so yeah. So Feyre, like, I'm not going to remember that. Like, I'm going to remember that detail with this character forever, right? Like, that I'm not going to confuse it with anyone. And I, like, that immediately created a barrier where it's, like, I'm not this character, but I understand this emotion immediately. And, like, that separation, like, yeah, resists the Mary Sue, as you so beautifully said. Absolutely. That was great. That was really, really good. It feels a lot bolder than a lot of other character building that I've seen in romance that we've read for this show. Yeah, and it also functions then to solidify like the mean things that people say about her, but also her own mean internal monologue where she's like, I'm just a stupid human who's like short, brutish, and nasty. And like, I'll never, like, I can't be here because like I can't read and like I don't know things and I'm not smart. And it's like, if you start from the place of like I can't read and I can't know things and like that's the part of it then it can like you see how that internal monologue is then reinforced by the external monologue of people who are trying to tear her down and like that kernel of truth around that fear and around that shame just works to build this thing and it's like ooh that was good a side note about this same topic I that's the thing that I'm most concerned with with the adaptation on television because it can i'm just so scared it's gonna be very like after school special Mm. which is not how it feels when i read it 
No, not at all. Um, it felt like uh, justified, and it also felt like the. It felt like everything I've ever had that felt like it was just very good. <laughs> it was so good. And so I think that's another one of the things that is was captivating about this book is that you get the pleasure of identifying with a character who is super capable, um, but seeing someone who has a relatable emotional drift who is still capable. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in talking about how we've kind of touched on it. Her and Lucian become a lot closer once we go under the mountain in the second half of the book. Um, because they are both kind of working to save Tamlin. Um, we have discovered Tamlin is incredibly powerful uh, at one point, we discover that the court is, in fact, full of landed gentry um, and full of servants that Feyre just wasn't able to see because Tamlin had magicked it so that she wouldn't be able to see them, so that she wouldn't feel overwhelmed at first when she came to live at court, uh, which is brilliant and thoughtful. And other weird stuff, like the fact that Alice looks incredibly old. Um, when our, when Feyre first meets her, she thinks she's like a beautiful 40 year old. Um, she's in fact thousands of years old and looks like tree bark. Mm -hmm. With that knowledge, that really shakes up like a lot of the scenes that happened before it. <laughs> At one point we get, this is a very uh, violent book. It's a pretty gory book. Mm -hmm. We find Tamlin dragging in the body of a a fellow fairy into this like quiet cavernous mansion, and the fairy's wings have been cut off. They've been ripped off. All Farah can do is just comfort him as he dies and bleeds out on the table, along with Tamlin. Imagine that in like a fully corded out court. <laughs> like it's that's such a tricky. I don't know. I don't think it. I don't think it quite lands. I don't think it lands if you think about it too long, but it's, like, one of those details that, like, you get it, and then you see it a couple of times, and then you, it, like, you're never, it's never returned to, because, like, that scene only really works if it's the two of them, because it's so relevatory about the world building, but also about Tamlin and, like, the limits of his power, because she says in that moment, like, can't you heal him? And he's like, I can't. Like, this magic is too deep and too dark. It, yeah, that was, like, one of the first scenes where I was like, oh, I'm not dealing with a traditional, like, this This isn't YA. Like, that was, that scene of death was so violent. Um, and, like, the helplessness of the two main characters in it um, was also a kind of disempowerment that you you often see, but, like, to not to this extent. Then when we go under the mountain, there are many scenes like that. Like, this is actually quite a violent book. Yeah. Well, it's also to say nothing of, like, the orgy. <laughs> do you want to talk about the physical violence or do you want to talk about the, the orgy, like, the two scenes of orgy and, like, what happens there? I'm happy well, to think, go down either route. I, I didn't think this was YA when I picked it up, but I'm uh, the idea that someone would think it was YA is... <laughs> Lots of people, in fact. So you thought it was YA. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about why you thought so? Absolutely. 
I encountered this book in 2017 in the YA section of a local Chicago bookstore when it had its original cover, which is just half of a young woman. And then it says like a court of uh, thorns and roses. And like the font is very YA and like the cover felt sort of like high fantasy uh, Hunger Games. And I was like, ah, I'm like, you know, okay, like, whatever. And then <laughs> um, I, you know, I'd heard about it sort of tangentially. And I was like, yeah, you know, this is probably a book that I would like. And, you know, it, it, it'll it be on my TBR eventually is kind of how I felt about it uh, in like 2017. And then it got a reprint with these beautiful block illustrations, these woodblock illustrations. And suddenly in that very same bookstore, it's not classified in the YA section. It has moved. Um, and I was looking this up because I still thought of it as YA. And I talked to you and you're like, it's not YA. And then I actually read it. And I was like, this is not YA. This is incredibly <laughs> violent. And then if you Google is a court of thorns and roses YA, like you get into these Reddit threads and these Goodread threads about like why it is YA or why it's not and like why you might have make, made that mistake. And it's not YA. Like this author did not intend for it to be YA. I think it was originally marketed that way, though, with that cover and that font. That's so weird. It is very weird. But I also think, like, the fact that this author had written sort of, like, YA slash new adult text before this that had been very popular but sort of niche in the YA new adult realm. And then this one went platinum. And part of the reason why I think it went platinum is because they got a better marketing team. Yeah, they found the right audience for it. Yeah, they're like, oh, man, if a mom on Goodreads fucking understands what this book is, she's not going to buy it for her kid, you know? Like, maybe she'll buy it for herself, though, but she's not going to buy it for herself with that cover. I I think this is... Uh a bit of a pandemic baby because I think this mm -hmm. new cover came out right around 2019 maybe and then everyone got on TikTok book talk blew up and you get the sense I mean like I I think of this as does the Barnes and Noble in Chili's town <laughs> as a book talk book mm -hmm. even though it's been out for a long time like the year after the year before we met is when this was originally published. Yeah. And I don't think I heard a breath about it. <laughs> I heard about Crescent City, but I hadn't heard about this until post 2020. I think you're exactly right. I think it is a pandemic baby that uh, really blew up. I And I think that's interesting. Like, I can't imagine what that must be like for an author or uh, let's say... You know, like, <laughs> that must be fun, but also crazy making. Oh, yeah. And I think you're right to say that, like, this book had to find its audience. And once it found it, like, poof. You know, it swings for the fences and it doesn't miss. And I think this this will take us neatly into the mountain. This is not a romance novel cover. Although a romance novel cover nowadays can be anything. That's true. But maybe, I don't know if this book totally, like, I think this book thinks of itself at least as influenced by romance novels, but I'm not convinced that this is a romance novel, even though it certainly strummed those strings in me. Okay. 
I want to break this into two parts, right? Because Tamlin is a Beauty and the Beast myth, certainly in the first, like, all of it. But Tamlin is also a really specific Celtic myth about a girl who wanders into the woods and meets the Fae during their wild hunt. And she falls in love with Tamlin, but he's kept in thrall by the Dark Queen. And he tells her how to break the spell. And the way that she's supposed to break the spell is by holding on to him when he shifts into his monstrous form. And so he does all of these really scary things during the wild hunt, and she has to hold on to him. Um, And if she holds on to him until the dawn, she gets to free him and keep him and, like, have their love. Jane Yolen does a really beautiful um, children's book about that. But what's also interesting to me about, like, the Beauty and the Beast myth and how it's nestled into Tamlin, but also nestled into Cupid and Psyche is this idea that like the young woman does something wrong and then the man is taken away and then she has to fight to get him back, like goes through a series of trials that are truly terrifying and that she can either die during or he can die during or everyone. And the way that this one functions is like the stakes are so high but like within the stakes of being so high like the evil queen is going to kill everyone in tamlin's court which you thought was 12 people but then learn is like hundreds (laughs) and not just tamlin's court there's a whole series of courts right like the politics of this place all she had to do but she didn't know this at the time was say that she loved him and like everyone would have been freed and everything would have been great but he lets her go mm-hmm. a la beast and bell because he wants her to be safe and like what are those decisions like because at the core of this you have the two people who love each other you're willing to sacrifice everything including hundreds of other people's lives for the person that you love but then like you know you get into this nesting orange or this nesting onion of this thing yeah and the way in which that functions inside these other myths is really interesting to me because Belle is so passive right she does go back to rescue beast and she she says this thing that is always really gutting to me and was at the time and continues to be like i love you don't leave me alone and in this telling it's i love you i'll fight for you i'll do everything i can um yeah it definitely seems like that flipped the switch so whatever you said cupid and psyche this and you said you know and you also pointed out that following along the Beauty and the Beast story or the Tamlin myth legend that our heroine does something wrong and part of her punishment is to spend time with this, like, beast, right? Uh, likewise, but there's also this thing about fate. Like, can you really do something wrong if it's what you were destined to do? And there's this revelation that he, Tamlin, had been sending his soldiers to the other side of the wall because it had been predicted that the human woman who would uh, fall in love with him, you know, they had to find her. And so she, in fact, did something very right. She fell right into their trap right they kind of understood that someone might die trying to find her yep she feels awful for killing his friend and confidant and soldier yeah (laughs) yeah slash servant soldier she feels awful for killing his soldier (laughs) yep and she is 
the under and mm-hmm. he makes her feel awful for that right he can't explain to her the real reason that she's there so he just mm-hmm. makes her feel like she's in trouble <laughs> but in fact she'd done everything right leading up to that absolutely but she refuses to say i love you to him because she doesn't think it's right since they're le- leaving each other to say that which is also something i don't think um, i've read a lead in a romance novel actually think about and so I, 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 that when I was reading this book, I got like the real sense that this book, though I don't think it's, mm-hmm. like that's why I feel like it's a, it's a meta romance. And just to preview, I think this becomes even more apparent in the second book, that it's in conversation with, it's not, it's not that the text itself is in conversation with its genres and these myths and legends that kind of scaffold the genres it's putting those in conversation with each other and I think one of the times in which I felt something like that when I got like an inkling of that is actually when Rysand Rysand shows up Rysand not the first time the second time when he yeah when he helps our our hero out when he reveals himself to be a more complicated character which is not something a villain would do in a normal romance novel especially not like a sexy hot one who definitely presents as like a romantic antagonist immediately yeah just to assure people that this is still a lowbrow program after we talked about cupid and psyche it reminded me of the Phantom of the Opera. Ah. <laughs> where you have the blonde, air quotes, obvious choice. Mm-hmm. And then you have the deep, dark, tortured brunette. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, who becomes the fan favorite. And he is. Boy, howdy. Yeah. Dark and brooding brunette. Absolutely. And then like the blonde one who's like literally sunshine and gold. And then this guy is like darkness. Like he like comes in and out of shadows. It's like, (laughs) And you just can't help it. But just (sighs) he's so fucking charming. Yeah. He does all the jealous boyfriend stuff. And I was like, these are two, you know, we've been talking about the Darcy versus the Rochester. (laughs) I think Tamlin is, in a lot of ways, even though he keeps her trapped in his house, he is a lot of the Darcy. He's um, a lot more, he seems a lot more of an Austin hero, kind of guileless. Oh, and pining. Yes, absolutely guileless and pining. And like, like hashtag good Duke. He cares about his lands. He cares about his people. He's like never going to lie. He's never going to cheat. And then you've got like this dark <laughs> Rochester who may dress up as, you know, a woman and a traveler and read your fortune slash monologue at you and talk about how he wants to break the cage of your ribs open. And I and I was like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, I thought you were distracting me with the like semi obviously not a boyfriend, Lucian. Mm-hmm. And Lucian seems like he's going to be her savior. And, and then Lucian doesn't show up. Rysand shows up. Resand. How did the audiobook say it? Resand. Resand. Resand arrives. And actually saves her, but also, like, 
puts her into this weird sexy drug state. It was like a Portishead song. Yeah. All the time. And actually does a lot to help her through her trials or does the most to help her through her trials. He does. Like there's, I don't think you can make an argument that he doesn't, right? Like not only does he save her from, uh, septic blood poisoning um which then they make a deal and he creates a psychic link with her through a hand tattoo that looks like a victorian lace glove hashtag goth girl with an eyeball (laughs) with an eyeball in the palm and so then he like psychically talks to her uh in one of the trials and literally saves her and lucian's life Um, because he recognizes that she won't be able to complete the trial because it's reading a riddle on a wall. And so, yeah, he definitely does the most to help her with the task. Like, Tamlin doesn't help her at all. Like, And the book is constantly understanding Tamlin's inability to help her slash his, um, as, as like a protective mechanism. Like, he can't show investment otherwise the 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 torture will get worse and the torture is pretty sadistic like fair warning it it is the darkest part of the book and the least the least um and so many of her tortures are domestic labor she has to like clean all a magically dirty hallway or they send her to scour resands resends fireplace for lentils assuming he's going to uh, rape her when he comes back Mm -hmm. he doesn't but he's also he's not chaste that's the other thing about tamlin versus um recent so there is like a wild hunt it's the first orgy in the book (laughs) we don't get like any on-page orgy which like um tamlin just comes back from the orgy smelling of the orgy and then Talks to little Vera about it. <laughs> Stinky orgy. You know, and the it's called the wild hunt, and a wild hunt is part of it, right? Resend is there, uh, and is not very wild. But once we get under the mountain, he like immediately like puts her in like negligees and touches her, like puts this painting on her that like only his fingers will not smudge. So as like a tool of preventing other people like part of you feels like oh like it's a way of protecting her which is probably true but like also he touches her the whole time and gets her very drunk so she can do her sexy dancing and meanwhile her like courtship with tamlin involves like a country dance (laughs) i like watching the sunrise yeah going skinny dipping in a crick (laughs) He gives her a portrait gallery and paints. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very, I think it is very like Austin heroine versus Bronte or Austin hero versus Bronte hero. Which is insanity because like they, there is a fairly long and uh, graphic and intimate sex scene between Tamlin and Feyre. But you're right to call their relationship in court courtship chaste and I and I wouldn't have used that word myself but like now that you say it like I can't unsee it and like it's not like this book is chaste or has closed door sex scenes or is shy about sex in any way but like recent is like sex incarnate and like there's something about Tamlin that's like really not 
and I think you're right to like it, it like this is our Darcy Rochester move and it's also like coded in terms of light and dark and I think it's also coded in terms of like complication of character right where it's like Tamlin's not willing to sacrifice his honor to save people recent is like he's willing to do anything and everything to save his court he grovels recent grovels and kills people at the behest of the dark queen yeah and like he's not sad to do it and like you know they call him the queen's harlot and the queen's whore and he is and he like he's like i'm not making fucking apologies about it like i'm gonna do what i can to keep what's mine and those who belong to me safe and then he has this real anger and like I think it's justified. He's like, you know, if Tamlin had been smarter, he would have fucking saved his court, you know, like there. And then this gets into the Game of Thrones stuff, right? Where it's like, (laughs) everybody loves Ned Stark. You can't not. He's a good guy. But God damn, if he'd played the game at all, like, yeah, you know, and then it's like, you can't help but love Tyrion. um, And even in his own way, Littlefinger, because there is something deeply compelling about characters whose morals are both sticky, flexible, and present. I think we know in our hearts that our morals are sticky and flexible and transparent, right? Like we would, yeah, any of us could have been in the Donner Party, which not even to speak about the cannibalism, but to speak about like the doubling down of your choices. It's kind of nice to see someone who is very... (laughs) Who, 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 like Ned Stark, you know, uh, he has to die for the rest of us to be okay with ourselves and for the show to not be boring. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Tamlin becomes incredibly boring. I think very intentionally so. Yes, he does. As soon as we get under the mountain. Because he becomes inert, right? Like he, he's literally neutered. Yeah. Rhysand's introduction reminded me very much of when Eric Northman first showed up in the True Blood series. Yes. Um, the books and the television show. Where it was just immediately like, oh shit. <laughs> Bill who? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what they, they're planning on doing with Bill here. <laughs> Having not read the second book, I can't like, I mean, I immediately one clicked when I finished this because I was like, I have to know what happens next. Our our hair our our story ends in a pretty dark place. I I don't know. Is that your is? Do you want to go into sexiest part, weirdest part? Yeah, I'm ready to do that if you are. Okay. What would you like to start with? What was your weirdest part, Morgan? My weirdest part. A couple. I have a couple in mind. Mm-hmm. One is the like almost violent hewing to first person perspective. <laughs> But we talked about all the great reasons that that actually works in this book. Another thing that I think was my weirdest part, and I don't know if, and it's not weird as in bad, right? Like, I think this might actually be one of the strengths of the book. But it's something that I've pondered because I think a lot about, as someone who consumes a lot of violent media, and in fact seeks it out um, as a horror fan, you know, Feyre's traumas are so frank, (laughs) to just repeat my last word. So in her final challenge, she is called on to kill three people. She doesn't know who they are. They each have a bag over their head. Um, And the first two are strangers to her. 
uh, and she kills them both. And then the third one is Tamlin. But she uses her uh, machinations to realize that uh, the Red Queen, the evil queen would never uh, kill Tamlin because she's too desirous of him. So Tamlin must have some kind of magic that's impervious to blades, and he was, right? His, like, heart is not within his own body or something like that. Uh, which is a total ripoff of Love, Laugh, Lich. It's true. He does. Um, that we read earlier this year. But he doesn't actually have a heart in his chest. So it's fine. Spoiler alert. They end up running away together. That seems insurmountable. Like, there is nothing that can happen in the next two books that is going to rectify that experience. For Feyre? For Feyre, but also for us as readers. Because, like, I mean, like, we know that, like, it's not just Tamlin. She's doing this to save everyone, but she's constantly thinking in her head, like, what do I care about these fairies? They, you know, oppressed my, rightfully, she's thinking they just, like, oppressed my people. They've denied us, obviously, a great deal of wealth by shutting us off in, like, the worst part of this continent. The only person here I care about is Tamlin. And the only reason she stabs him in the heart is because she knows he'll survive it. Would she have killed him anyways to save this entire population of people under the mountain no i don't think so i think she definitely would have killed herself to like and like that's where the stuff about like the the unit of the romantic couple versus the stakes of the broader society get real messed up where it's like the fact that tamlin let her go at all yeah with like three days to go where all he had to do is wait for the I love you and like everything would have been fine. But he's like, no, I have to save her. It's like, you just doomed hundreds of people, my dude. Like, that's not, that's not chill. And like, yeah. the other thing about that scene, which is visceral, is the two strangers that she kills, I think, are, like, I agree with you. Like, they're like, I don't know how Feyre is ever going to recover from this trauma. I don't, I, I rightly think that you're, correct to point out that for the audience it'll be tough because the first one is a young is a very young man and he's crying and he's asking for his life and then there are people in the crowd also crying and asking for his life and she you know it, the book spends a lot of time here and like a part, ton of time part of me is like good because like this deserves this kind of violence shouldn't be lessened by soft cuts right and it's not. And then in the next, she kills him, which is brutal, and his body falls to the floor. And then the next one is a young girl who starts praying a prayer that we'd heard. And it's the prayer of like, I don't know, it kind of feels like a last rites prayer. And like they'd done it, Tamlin and she had done it for the fairy whose wings had been ripped off. So like there's this really intense callback to this other scene of violence. And then this young woman like looks Feyre in the eye and is like, like do it quick which is brutal in a different kind of way yeah right where it's like there's this understanding where it's like you know it's like i won't blame you for this which is oh god like somehow even worse here's the thing like i don't think that she looking at her in the eye when i read that and saying do it quick wasn't like i will hold you blameless for this i think it was like i know who you are and you're going to kill me I thought it was, like, kind of hateful. Oh, that's definitely not how Jennifer Akita read it. <laughs> she she read it very much like, 
that that like Feyre understood it as a, a kind of bravery at least and like that that didn't come with blame and yeah and then they reveal Tamlin and I'm like holy fuck it's brutal also like the solution to the riddle is so obviously love that was also frustrating like make it a harder riddle we all did riddles in the dark we <laughs> fucking know um yeah, I mean, I, I think th- I think that why is that your weirdest part? Like just because like how are we gonna rescue Feyre from this or like It's something I hadn't really read in a romance novel before. And I think it's the thing that most makes this not a romance novel because but I mean we've read lots of romances that were like, oh, so she lives happily ever after with her rapist. Is that actually how this is going to go. Oh, she like gave up her dreams of traveling the world so she could make babies. Is that really a happily ever after? And this is something similar, like, but it's self-aware. And like being able to point it out on your own through critique is one thing, but having it shown to you directly (laughs) is a whole other kind of visceral intellectual experience. And, you know, I think the fact that I read that scene of the second execution, I guess, murder, as being hateful meant that I was kind of resentful of what was happening because I knew what was happening was some, it was like another version of the femme character giving up their soul feels soul feels right for this situation identity at least in all the others yeah no i think that's exactly right to say soul certainly in this situation and and i it hadn't occurred to me to equate it with all the others in terms of but i think you're right um that that feels really correct and she says like she feels her soul ripping apart and like you know when i read that i was like oh okay voldemort (laughs) you know like this is how we make horcruxes but also, like, this is how we make horcruxes. And that's the difference between Tamlin and Reeston, which is, like, he fucking knows, man. This is how this is how the sausage gets made. And, like, all of this is also done under the shadow of a body of a human person, Clara Better, who is the name that she gave to reason originally for like the fake queen and so then this woman this young woman and her entire family are murdered and that body is just decaying on the back of the hall under the mountain it's brought up a couple of times as like this macabre feature but like i think what was so intense to me about that was that it was brought up just enough times that you could forget about it until it was brought up again And, like, that kind of feature of violence, creating, like, this omnipresence of it in this space, even when incredible other violence, scenes of violence are happening, was so powerful. Um, And also, like, Clara functions as the first murder that Feyre commits for Tamlin. Besides the Yeah, besides the soldier. So, yeah tough stuff what was your weirdest part i mean honestly i was thinking clara better functions in that way for me yeah kind of the same deal 
having her body brought there uh, was pretty tough. It also is, like, so complex. I'm sorry. Maybe you're getting to this, but it's so complex. You see something good about Recent in that he's trying to protect the character we most identify with via relentless first person. But it's also bad because there's literally a skinned person mm-hmm. on a wall that he could have saved but didn't, thinking that maybe this would allow Feyre to get away. And then Feyre just walks into the room shortly after Claire dies. Right. And so then she dies for, like, literally nothing. And their moral sacrifice, if you even want to call it that, which feels dubious at best. Um, No, so my weirdest part is, like, we get this whole backstory about why the evil queen is so evil, and it's because her awesome battle axe sister fell in love with a human on the opposing side of this war 500 years ago. And she now wears that human man's eyeball that is like still activated by his soul and she just like wears it and talks to like it and his finger bone and so we're given this story pretty flat like there there's no nuance like sister falls in love with the guy on the wrong side of the war and doesn't want him hurt and then like he betrays her and then the sister and the 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 living sister this amarantha is swears to destroy the man who destroyed her sister and like you know it's just super intense and i'm like all right so that's one version of this story i can't wait till we get the other version which is like coming around the corner (laughs) and the reason why i felt like this story was so flat is because it's given to us in this chunk of uh exposition from alice and it just like she's just telling us this whole thing without anything so i'm like okay so that's one version of it can't wait till we get to the court under the mountain and we find out that not only is amarantha a psycho but this is all like everything she's built is a lie like this whole thing is like a lie and then it's not it just like is and i was like why why was i trying to make it more complicated why didn't i believe it and i think it's because this book did such a good job of being complicated and i was like well it can't be face value why would this thing be face value when nothing else has been um and the fact that it wasn't was disappointing to me because i was like oh wait that it's like actually a guy's soul attached to his eyeball in her ring yeah kept in perpetual agony and forever kept as a perpetual witness yeah 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 that's it that's but can it be like you thought it was going to be like a pay no mind to the man behind the curtain type of thing no i thought like the story of this guy betraying her sister and like that starting her down this like path of insanity revenge for like you know half a millennia oh oh isabeau it is gonna get more complicated good Thank God, because if I was, that's what you're like, because <laughs> I was like, this is like, why? Like, why is this like this initiating story of her psychotic revenge? Like, there has to be more to it than that. Like, this isn't I don't believe it is definitely how I felt. And then like it ends and I'm like, I guess I have to believe it. Yeah. Is how I felt. Yeah. So it gets more complicated. It gets more complicated. I mean, like, that's a lot of it, but it is more complicated. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's truly a fantasy series. Uh, there's a lot of politics going on. Is it like a romance in that it follows other people, or am I just stuck with Feyre? 
Oh, we're stuck with Farah the whole time. Oh, okay. Well, that makes it different from a romance. Yeah. Well, and, like, here's the thing. Like, do you think that was intentional so it didn't read too much like a romance? I don't know, because, like, my, my question for you, having, you know, having read the second book, at first I was like, oh, the second book's going to be about Lucian and some person. And now I'm like, well, now it's going to be Reeston and Feyre because they have to spend this, like, week together once a month at the night court. Yeah. But, like, why do that? Why couldn't we just have, like, you know, like, that's one of the things that I actually do like about romance, where it's like, oh, if you liked the best friend Loki character, wait till you get to the second book, because it's all about them. And I just, I do love that. Because, like, sometimes I don't want to be so ruthlessly embedded in someone's perspective. I'm like, all right, I'm ready for a shift. Which I did like at the very end of this book, when the weird goth glove connection, whatever, uh kept a piece of her soul through Reeston's eyes. Um, and of course, like, that's not my sexiest part, but that was a part that I liked a lot because I was suddenly seeing Feyre through someone, like, her own eyes through Reeston, which, like, whatever. But I'm like, oh, God, it's so nice not to be in your body. <laughs> yeah, a drop of water in yeah. the desert. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's interesting. I think... I think this is worth talking about on our romance novel-based podcast, but I think it's a bit more complicated than normal. (laughs) I think it, I mean, obviously this book justifies itself since we have a Darcy and a Rochester and they are giving- We have a Darcy, we have a Rochester, we have a beauty, we have a beast, we have a Cupid, we have a Psyche, we have a Tamlin. It's all the things. And it's, like, getting into spooky season. We've got a wild hunt. Like, listen. Speaking of wild hunt, mm-hmm. may, I, may I share my sexiest part? Please. Please do. So it's in the first half of the book. We're in the spring court. And the wild hunt is happening. And everyone was super cagey about it with Feyre. And I think it's because... I assumed it was because she was naive. Like, I was like, oh, my God, we're in the spring court. This thing's going to be, like, wall-to-wall orgies. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't wall-to-wall orgies, but it was one big one. And so when they're talking about this upcoming, you know, right, and they want her to, like, stay in her room and not interfere, um, but she kind of escapes and, and she finds herself, you know, cornered by – escapes. She just kind of walks out. And discovers this ceremony. She follows these drums. She feels compelled, as anyone would be, to find an orgy when it's so nearby. And she <laughs> walks up and she kind of she gets accosted by these two guys who are like, everybody's here to fuck. Are you here to fuck? Uh, that's crazy. You're a human. <laughs> that is definitely the energy of that conversation. And then Resand <laughs> appears. And acts like she's his date so that she can get away. Mm-hmm. And she gets away. Um, and then she just kind of like dawdles around the house. She has a glass of milk, a late night, midnight snack. And then uh, Recent comes in. Tamlin. Not Recent. Tamlin. Uh, and he corners her. And it's super late. And uh, the moonlight from the open – can I read it? Please. Okay. I'm just going to read it, you guys. The moon- <laughs> And just to be clear, like, we don't – they haven't even been like, hey, I like you yet. 
Um, and, I, and I love a slow burn, so I'm tickled to death. I was about to turn down the hallway when a tall male figure appeared before me. The moonlight was the open window from the open window turned his mask silver and his golden hair unbound and crowned with laurel leaves gleamed. Going somewhere? Tamlin asked. His voice was not entirely of this world. I suppressed a shudder. Midnight snack, I said, and I was keenly aware of every movement, every breath I took as I neared him. His bare chest was painted with whirls of dark blue woad. This this world has woad in it, too. And from the smudges <laughs> in the paint, I knew exactly where he'd been touched. Foreshadowing. I tried not to notice that they descended past his muscled midriff. I was about to pass him when he grabbed me so fast that I didn't see anything until he had pinned me against the wall. The cookie dropped from my hand as he grasped my wrists. I smelled you, he breathed. His painted chest rising and falling so close to mine. I searched for you and you weren't there. It says he reeked of magic and not of sweat and semen. We know what magic means. He was he was in a cave with like a ton of people. So he's like holding her against the wall and he's talking about how crazy it drove him to smell her and not be able to find her. They have like a little banter. And then it says, I cried out as his teeth clamped onto the tender spot where my neck met my shoulder. I couldn't move, couldn't think, and my world narrowed to the feeling of his lips and teeth against my skin. He didn't pierce my flesh, but rather bit to keep me pinned. And that was when I was like, oh, this is like a romance novel, because it's definitely a romance novel talking about shifter romance novels. Like, this is the blooding pantomime. They also have, like, a literal mating where, you know, she's like, oh, are your parents married? And he's like, no, they were mated. That's deeper than marriage. And I was like, oh, okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was definitely my sexiest part. I've reread it a few times. I loved it so much. But also, it tells me, like, this book is in direct conversation with other with romance as a, as a genre, not just, like, the core texts of romance, but romance itself. Because faded mate stuff is like deep cut, real ones only. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very specific to romance. It is very specific to romance. Like the neck biting, like having a mate who you're fated to is not specific to romance, but this specific neck biting thing is. Very much so, like that first blooding. Yes. Yeah, dude. And it's super sexy. God, he just like comes in all wreathed in moonlight. Ugh. His long hair. Hubba mm. hubba. All right. What was Seriously. your sexiest part? I mean, obviously, like that's the sexiest part. Um, and I was when I was reading their their initial sex scene, I was like, oh, you know, like this is nice. And it like hits all like the first sex scene highlights. Like, you know, there's kind of a slow build and there's like you know a pause and then she like throws off her nightgown and like all of that's great but since you took the the big cake with that one the other sexy part that I did like that I thought was 
I don't know how I want to describe it because like what it what it does how it functions is like this complex morality thing that we've been talking about with Reeston um where it's the night before the last task all the tasks have been terrible like Pharaoh's almost died lots of people have almost died and then like Tamlin has been this immovable boring piece of shit uh trapped by the evil queen and he finally like got gets onto the dance floor in this mob of people and like signals to her to follow him so they find like a closet behind a tapestry and just like tear into into each other and in this scene she's covered in all the blue paint and like has been marked as Reeston's and they're just like she's like ripping off his belt and she's like climbing him and his like tongue's halfway down her throat and I'm like holy shit this sex scene is like happening so hot and so heavy and then Reeston comes in to throw cold water on all of us and it's like oh man I was titillated and now I'm not and then he comes in and like Tamlin leaves and then Reeston just like throws himself at her and is like there's this very hot non-consensual kiss and he's just like holding her and then doing all the stuff so then when they're they are discovered by the evil queen and the rest of the court the smudges on her can be explained by Reeston's actions rather than Tamlin's because if she, the evil queen had found out that Tamlin had done that, who knows what would have happened. Push, pull, push, pull, push, pull. Like I'm hot. Now I'm cold. I'm like, I'm hot. I'm cold. I'm hot. I'm cold. I'm hot. I'm cold. <laughs> Great. Very good. Also, I will say I totally forgot there was an actual sex scene in this book. Yeah. Cause it's pretty forgettable. Like between those kinds of other scenes, like, cause it's, it's, yeah. This other stuff is so the good. Other stuff, like their their sex scene is very nice. It functions very much like many romance first sex scenes. Like it's slow. There's kind of lingus. There's lots of touching. There's sepia tones, but it's not like marking her. This is something I'm just gonna put on the romance shelf for future discussion because I am sure we're gonna find a better example of this down the road. But I feel sometimes like sex scenes are now uh-huh. like value signaling. Like, you don't have to worry about this guy. <laughs> he eats pussy. I think you've just discovered a bonus that you and I need to talk about because this is something that I have also been thinking a lot about. Like, what? Really? Because for so long, you and yeah. I have said like sex scenes function as kind like they have to function on multiple levels, right? They function as, like, a conversation with bodies, but they also function as character development. They function as a catharsis for a particular moment in the building of a relationship. But I I think I think you're really on to something about potential virtue signaling Yeah, in these sex scenes. And it's like, can't we just have fun? Yeah, I can't. Or, or like, it's like there's enough complicated stuff underlying, like, the ways you enjoy sex and, like, how you choose to have sex and who you choose to have sex with. Do we have to like add all this paratext <laughs> to the paratext? Yeah. It's really putting a hat on a hat, trying to moralize a character via their boinking. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I would like to collect a series of uh, examples and then like present them to you, dear listeners. And like, you can decide for yourself about whether or not you agree with our uh, burgeoning thesis here. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure someone's going to be like, I like it. Maybe it's not just, you know, maybe it's not for us, but like, it does feel like a little bit of a hat. It's got to be for somebody. And that's the worst part and the best part about living in the world. It may not be for you, but it's probably for somebody. 
All right. Womance or nomance? Womance. I one-clicked the second one. I can't wait to read it. Gosh. Nothing slaps like the hits. (laughs) But also, it's like all the hits. You know, it's like the gaggle of boyfriends. It's like, I, you know, moral complexity, a Darcy, a Rochester, a complicated, capable, uh, you know, heroine who gets better when she eats more. Let's have more of that. I mean, there's so much... uh... There's so much of that kind of base. I I hate to call it base because it's so rare and special. But there is so much of that base pleasure about like, oh, like she's sexy because she's a woman. The text is rich. Like right now, heading into our next conversation, the way I feel about this is that this book is in conversation with romance more than it is with fantasy. At least it's talking about romance more so than fantasy. So one of the things I want to talk about next time is when we read the second book is how did you think this world looked at first and what about the world building and like the kind of fantasy fantasy stuff, the politic and everything, how it kind of fleshes out. So something to look forward to. (laughs) Yeah, I'll be be thinking about that then. I, I will read the second book with those eyes. The first book. But A Court of Thorns and Roses, I think it works on its own. Um... But I don't know why anyone would stop at just this one. Yeah, I don't know either. This one is definitely like... And like 2015 when this book came out, Netflix was already a streaming behemoth. Like it does feel very much like, you know, the the timer's clicking down on like the next episode and you have just like, you know, that minute to get your, you know, glass of water, like, you know, that other whatever food you're eating during your binge. Um that's definitely how this felt for me. Like when this book ended, I was like, okay, next episode. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a good feeling. Nothing slaps like the hits. Okay. Well, thank you all for listening. Can't wait to talk about the second book with you. Can't wait to hear uh, what y'all think of A Court of Thorns and Roses and what you think about what we think about A Court of Thorns and Roses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the meantime... Loosen your stays. But never your principles. We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand address letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music 
by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at woemans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Romance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.